Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. We're calling 2019 the year of the Bible, and all year long we're reading through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and our Sunday sermons are coming from the weekly readings. If you'd like to join in, go to cornerstonetulsa.org, click on Year of the Bible. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Psalm 40, 1 through 8. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare to you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Uh, God, let us pray. Uh, Today we thank you for the opportunity to gather together to hear your word. Uh, We pray that you open our hearts to reflect on the wonders you have done, the things you have planned for us. Uh, Use this time to help us better understand your will as we reflect on your word. Amen. Amen. One of my uh, favorite genres of movies are uh, road trip movies. Any of you like road trip movies? I'm going to throw some out, and if I don't mention your favorite, I'm going to ask you to throw yours out in just a minute. Uh, Movies like Tommy Boy, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Rain Man, uh, Easy Rider, Almost Famous, Uh, my favorite, Dumb and Dumber. any that I'm missing? Any of you have any favorite road trip? Vacation. How did I not mention that? Yeah, of course. Any? Thelma and Louise. All right. I've never seen it, but yes, road trip, road trip movie. What, did I hear one more? RV. All right. Never seen that one either, but I may have to check it out. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but as we are reading together through the Bible, beginning in Genesis, we're reading all the way through Revelation, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but really the first six books of the Bible, we're only on book four, but the first six books of the Bible are really basically a road trip story, right? And I think one of the reasons why I like road trip stories so much is because they're so relatable. Um, Not only because I have a family and we've been on road trips, but life itself really is kind of a road trip, isn't it? Like there's this sense of journey that we're all on from here to there, and Most of the movies that I mentioned are comedies, and I think they're funny because life can be so hard sometimes, and we face so many obstacles that it's important for us to be able to watch other people going through the same things that we are and to be able to laugh at them. So when we consider the first six books of the Bible as a road trip story, they they can begin to become alive for us. Um, And so I know many of you have have joined with us from the beginning of January as we've uh, read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 
now we're in numbers. And there's others of you that maybe weren't here January 1. And you haven't had a chance to kind of jump in and join us uh, as we're on this journey together. And so what I want to do uh, this morning is a couple things. But one of the things I want to do is invite you to jump in with us as we read Scripture together where we are now. Uh, it's going to be difficult to make up two months of reading and stay caught up. So what I want to do is I just want to summarize really quickly where we've been, um, kind of as a reminder for those of us that have been reading, but also a chance to invite those of you that maybe haven't had a chance to join. You're kind of feeling like, gosh, I'm behind. I don't know where to start. To give you kind of a place in the Bible that you can put your finger and say, I'm going to start here. So we started uh, in Genesis, and Genesis goes like this. If you ever want to know how kind of the first books of the Bible lay out, I'm going to outline them real quick, so you can just write these down in your notes. Genesis begins with, the, with creation. God created the heavens and the earth, and ultimately that climaxes with the creation of humanity. And God creates humanity because he desires to be in relationship with us. But then the fall takes place. Adam and Eve choose to disobey God, choose to live the way they want to live, which creates this separation between God and his people. And then in Genesis 12, God calls this man named Abraham, and he gives Abraham this promise. He says, he tells Abraham to go to the land that he will show him, and that Abraham will be God's people, and God will be his God. And the whole intent of that is to point to the fact that God wants to redeem and restore his relationship with humanity that was broken at the fall. That's what the call of Abraham is all about, that you will be my people and I will be your God. And so Abraham passes this promise on to his son Isaac, who passes this promise on to his son Jacob, who passes that same promise on to his son Joseph. So we got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph which kind of concludes the book of Genesis. Now, the interesting thing is Joseph ends up actually further away from God's promises at the, at the end of Genesis than really he was when he started. They end up in Egypt in slavery. And so then we go to the second book of the Bible, which is Exodus. And in the Exodus, God calls and, and uh, uses this man named Moses to lead his people out of Egypt Again, restoring this promise that God's leading them to this promised land so that he can be their God and they could be his people. And then that leads us to the book of Leviticus. Um, man, how many of you like trudged your way through Leviticus? Leviticus, we don't spend a whole lot of time in Leviticus. You know why? Because there's 65 other books in the Bible, Right? Leviticus is like so hard to read, but there's actually a lot that takes place in Leviticus. And it's actually incredibly important for us to understand the story that we find ourselves in today. Leviticus and Leviticus, they're led out of Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land. But before they can get there, God desires to restore his covenant with his people, to restore his promises, to remind them that I am leading you to a land, that I am delivering you out of slavery because you are my people, and I'm going to redeem our relationship. So you see this covenant being made between God and his people at Mount Sinai. And then you see the people, once again, just like Adam and Eve did, break this covenant. And so God gives the people these promises, these ways that he's going to be present with them in the tabernacle and then through the law. And that leads us through the book of Leviticus, which then leads us to Numbers. 
And so if you've trudged your way through Leviticus, you like turn the page thinking, oh, great, a new book. And then you see the title, Numbers. Really? I just survived all of these laws and now I've got Numbers. But Numbers is really a book about the journey to the promised land. It's not a book that's simply about numbers. It is a road trip story. And if we begin the book with that kind of lens that we're, that we're viewing it through, it, it begins to begin to become more interesting for us. So how did it get the, book, the name Numbers? I mean, if the book's such a great book about this road trip journey, how did it get the name Numbers? Well, any large road trip begins with what? Before you leave, what do you want to do? Okay, know your destination. Libby, you're a teacher. Before you take your kids anywhere, what do you do? First thing. You number them off. That's right. We want to be sure we get everybody where we're going. The book of Numbers is titled because it's a road trip book, but any large road trip always begins with a head count. But the interesting thing is to call the book Numbers would be like saying, hey, family, we're going on a head count. Aren't you so excited? Instead of we're going on a trip or an adventure. The book of Numbers is, is this amazing story of God leading his people on an, on an adventure. The book of Numbers is a journey of struggles and obstacles. It's a story containing envy, jealousy, and betrayal. It's a journey of disobedience and a journey of second chances. It's a journey where people can't, sorry. It's a journey where people can't or shouldn't go back. They seemingly can't go forward and they can't make it where they are on their own. It's a journey where the only way out is through, and the only way through is God. See, the book of Numbers and the Bible as a whole is written for real people with real problems who live in the real world. It's not for some sanitized life, which some of us talk about, but none of us really believe, and certainly none of us have experienced the Bible as a whole is a book that honestly acknowledges the reality of the, broken, the brokenness and fallenness of each one of us and the world we live in with all the pain, with all the loss, with all the confusion that goes with it. And so the Bible reminds us over and over again that we get closer to our Heavenly Father by living on this planet realistically. Not by attempting to avoid or ignore pain or struggle, or loss. And that's just it. Through this whole story, that's God's desire for his people, for the Israelites. It's his desire for you and I that we would trust him. God ultimately wants their hearts. He wants our hearts as well. Remember the promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, because this is part of the lens through which we are to read the entire Bible. The promise is, go to the land of Canaan, and I will give it to you. But the most important part of God's promises is this, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. God desires relationship with each one of us. This road trip in Numbers is one that begins and ends with God's holiness 
and his faithfulness with the rebellion of Israel and in many ways us smashed in the middle. One of the themes, if you've been keeping up with us, that we've been reading about over the last couple of weeks, and certainly as we read the book of Leviticus, is this idea of God's holiness. This is what the moral and purity laws in the book of Leviticus are all about. If you haven't, I would just encourage you to go and open up the Read Scripture app or go to the Bible Project and watch one of the videos on God's holiness. It just kind of opens our eyes about why we're reading about all of these ritual and moral laws that we read in Leviticus. And it also reminds us that God's holiness matters because it speaks to us of God's otherworldly power and goodness. And God's holiness is something that we've kind of lost sight of as the church. As followers of God in general, we've lost sight of God's holiness. And I think part of this is because our best reasoning falls short of comprehending God's holiness. And so we choose to go our own way. Our own reasoning falls short of fully comprehending God's goodness and God's power. And so we choose to pursue our own way. As we read the Bible, we see over and over again that God desires relationship with his people. And God is faithful to keeping his promises, but God will allow his people to walk away. And he'll allow you and I to walk away as well. We see this in the story of Adam and Eve, and this is ultimately what the original sin was all about. It was about Adam and Eve not fully comprehending God's goodness and God's power, and so they're deceived then to pursue their own way of life. Abraham and his wife go through this same story. Jacob struggles with this as well. And now Israel as a whole in our story all decided to do things on their own according to their own agenda. And so, so much of the Bible, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, really comes down to do we trust God or are we going to choose our own rational rebellion? And I like that phrase, rational rebellion, because for, for Adam and Eve and even for the Israelites in the book of Numbers, as they grumble and as they lose trust in God and decide they want to do things on their own, and as I do this and as you do this, we all do this rationally. The Israelites believe that they're doing the right thing. The, the Israelites believe they're doing the thing that will get them further ahead. They've rationalized this. Abraham rationalized the decisions that he made to go above God and try to force things on his own. There is a rational rebellion. We are convinced that we are right when we choose things other than the ways of God. Which leads me to this. Another reason why we avoid talking about God's holiness and one of the reasons why I struggle with it, like reading Leviticus and even parts of Numbers is just really difficult. Like you read some of the things that take place and some of the consequences of sin and it's just heavy, right? I, I, sometimes I don't know what to do with it. And so God's holiness, as I begin to wrap my mind around it the best I can, I find it disturbing sometimes. But as I was wrestling with this, I began to realize that God's holiness disturbs me Primarily because I want to do things my own way. When I read about God's holiness and it disturbs me, it's primarily because I want to do things my own way. And at the same time, God's holiness encourages me because my way hasn't worked. 
God's holiness disturbs me, disturbs us because we want to do things our own way. We want to choose rational rebellion. And God's holiness should encourage us because our way doesn't work. As I'm reading Leviticus and and even Numbers, I mean, Numbers is this road trip story. God's promised the Israelites that they would go to the promised land. They're walking out of Egypt towards Canaan. This is a two-week journey that ends up taking 40 years. Like, if you've ever been back in the back of a car and asked, are we there yet? Imagine if you had a two-week journey by foot that ends up being 40 years. Are we there yet? And as I'm, I'm thinking about this and thinking about the consequences of sin, the consequences of choosing our own way, I, like, I wish they weren't there. But then as I think about it, I wonder if it's not true that the consequences of sin are really just warnings or even roadblocks steering us away from cheering our, or choosing our own condemnation. As we think about sin and we think about the consequences of sin, there's times that we wish it wasn't true. We want to justify our way out of it. We want to rationalize our way out of it. But what if, what if the consequences of our sin is really God's grace steering us away from choosing our own condemnation? There are consequences to sin because if there aren't, we'd veer way off. Consequences, yes. But as we read the biblical story, condemnation, no. For the Israelites, as they're wandering in the desert for these 40 years, to go back to Egypt would be to choose their own slavery. And at the same time, if God had allowed them to go into the promised land under their own authority, it would have led to self-reliance. And God knows that what's best for the Israelites, what's best for you and I, is that we would be in relationship with him and trust him. And that's where our true fulfillment comes from. So the choice for the Israelites, the choice for you and me, between the promised land or the wilderness, ultimately comes down to trust. And in the midst of that, here's the truth. Like the Israelites, we may grumble about the manna. We may grumble about the way God's providing for us. And we might at times honestly just long for the slavery of the past. And it's interesting in the midst of this, the Israelites are wandering around in the desert. They're grumbling about the manna. They're longing for Egypt when they were under slavery, which which how crazy is that? And in the meantime, God's up on this hillside working on their behalf through a donkey. God's remaining faithful. God's at work that The Israelites aren't even aware of it. They're not even aware of it. Instead, they're down there grumbling. And in the midst of their grumbling, God's working on their behalf for his purposes. Uh, Any of you, as you were reading Numbers, were you just like doing this the whole way through? Like, come on, guys. Any of you doing that? Reading through about the Israelites? I, I was doing that. Like, guys, come on. They're grumbling, and God's in the background, like, working out his promises. And the Israelites don't even know it. And as I was putting my palm to my forehead, I realized that whether I acknowledge it or not, I'm just as dependent on God as the Israelites were. And I have some of the same faults that the Israelites had. My sin and rebellion might not be the same, but I have it. 
Your sin and rebellion might not be the same, but it's there. No one is getting into heaven, none of us, no one in this room, no one outside of this room is getting into heaven not needing redemption. And we're all just as gifted at rationalizing our rebellion as the Israelites were. Which leads me to this question. As we're reading through this road trip story, as we're reading through this journey, as we're putting our palm to our forehead over the Israelites' decisions, the question that we should be wrestling with is this. In what ways am I pursuing myself instead of God? And the way that I handle my finances or my vocation or my sexuality or my future? How do I treat my friends, my neighbors, those I disagree with or my enemies? And here's the question that for me was like, when it popped in my head, it, like, it just felt the weight of it. Where does my rationalization come in conflict with God's word? Where does my rationalization come in conflict with God's word? And then we've got to choose what to do about that. Now, some of you, as you read through numbers, uh, some of you may feel like you're living in the desert right now. The desert feels awful. But as you read this, you begin to like, get this picture that the desert is actually an oasis of grace for the Israelites. Because it's in the desert that the Israelites are learning to trust God instead of themselves. Now, there's a great poem that I've got uh, taped uh, on my wall next to my desk by a man named Wendell Berry. Uh, and he writes this. For those of you that are living in the desert, this is great. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed, and the impeded stream is the one that sings. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, you know, like, feel like all you know to do is to give up. You've come to your real work. Remember, God's desire from the beginning is that his people, that humanity, that Adam and Eve, that Abraham, that Jacob, that Joseph, that the Israelites will trust him. He wants their hearts. and He wants our hearts. As we read through the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, even Leviticus, and even Numbers, and Deuteronomy is, is kind of like, it's kind of difficult to get through as well. But as we're reading all of that, we're always to be reading it through the lens of Jesus. As we're reading these stories, is it basically about me or is it about God's faithfulness? Are these stories basically about things that we are supposed to do or is the book and the, the story of the Bible about what God has already done for us? Uh, the entirety of the Old Testament points us to the climactic redemptive work of God through Jesus. And we are to read the Old Testament through this lens. So God's holiness, Israel's rebellion, and God's means of redemption through the sacrificial system and ceremonial cleansing all point to Jesus. I had never read through the book of Leviticus from front to back before because why would you, right? 
But I, I did because we've committed to do it together. And as I was like in, right in the middle of it, smack dab in the middle of it, there's like sacrifices that you have to make for this sin and you have different animals for this sin. And then if you don't sacrifice correctly, there's a sacrifice for not sacrificing correctly. And I like just reading through all of this, I was thinking about the priests and my role as a pastor and I was like, there is no way I could keep up with this. Not as a priest, not as a pastor, and frankly, not even as a human being, like trying to keep track of all of my sins, and I've got to have this sacrifice for this sin, and this sacrifice for that sin, and I'm not clean because I touched a dead person, and so now I've got to do this and this and this, because God's holy, and I'm not. I don't know, like, how do you keep up with all of that? My head was absolutely swimming. And with the clarity that I hadn't had before, I began to realize that all the sacrifice that you and I need is summed up right here. For those of us that have been rationally rebelling, for those of us that have been choosing our own ways, God invites us daily to come back to him. And all the sacrifice that we need in order to be clean, in order to be in relationship with him, in order that our sins and our blemishes can stand in the presence of God's holiness is right here. It's summed up in the sacrifice that Jesus made, the perfect sacrifice that he made for each one of us. And so every Sunday when we come up and we take the bread and we take the juice, all of those laws in Leviticus are being covered. And the holiness of God and our rebellion are then brought together because we're washed clean and invited back into relationship with him. In our confession and repentance on Sunday mornings when we come to the table, we're saying is, like the Israelites began saying, wandering in the desert, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. And that makes God's heart sing because that's where we were created to live. God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. And this confession doesn't mean giving up. It means we're placing our trust in the one who doesn't give up on us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all of us are somewhere on our journey. Lord, some of us think that we have things perfectly under control. We've rationalized our way into a life that we can, that we've convinced ourselves we can manage on our own. And Father, others of us are in the place where life has happened enough that we know that's no longer true. God, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to go back. We know we shouldn't go back. Lord, we don't know the way forward. And Lord, we're just swimming in our doubt and confusion and the chaos of life. And yet, God, you meet us right there. God inviting us, trust me. Trust me. And God, all the rebellion that, and all the doing on our own that we've put together, Father, you've covered through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as you invite each one of us back to your table this morning, God, may we place our trust in you. God, knowing that you're faithful and you haven't given up, 
and you won't give up on us. Amen.